Like most of you, I watched the news today with a heavy heart. Also, like most of you, I I don't know what to do. Uh, it was kind of shocking. I was telling, I think I was telling Judy before service, I was working on the Psalm 7, which I had planned to do, and was finishing it up and just kind of finalizing some things and had the, the Senate and all of that going on in the background as background noise when suddenly everything changed. And so that ended up occupying a lot of my time as it went from, now that's strange to hold. I mean, it just, of course, you saw it just got worse as the day went on. And so it has been been a something. Who would have ever thought uh, that we would have something like that happen in, in our nation on a day like today when they were doing what they were doing in Congress? So I, I don't know what to do other than pray for our country. I mean, we're not in D.C., so it's not like we can be there to do anything. And even if we were there, it's not like we could do a whole lot, but add to the confusion and the chaos, but we can pray. Uh, And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to pray, and I'm going to spend a significant portion of the week praying. I think unless something changes, I will be here uh, tomorrow at noon, Friday at noon, uh, and probably Saturday, either at noon or at 7 in the evening, to pray, specifically to pray for the nation. I I hope you'll join me. Feel free to if you want to. If not, that's fine. But let's, let's make it a point this week to be very much on our knees, very much crying out to our God on our on behalf of our nation. But as we pray for our country, what I want to do tonight is lay what I'm going to call a foundation toward our posture of prayer. Not so much what we should pray, but how we ought to pray. What our attitude toward God should be as we pray. And we're going to look at quite a few passages. Most of them will be up here. We're only going to turn to one towards the end. But we're going to start in, in Habakkuk. And this is a familiar passage. We've looked at it multiple times. But in this passage, there are three parts of it that are important. But only two we're going to look at tonight. The first part and then the very last part. So Habakkuk prays. Uh, the very first part right before this says a prayer of Habakkuk. And, and he said, Oh Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. Now Habakkuk was a Bible scholar in some ways. He was a student of God's word. He knew what God had said. And and Habakkuk, a prophet, as he looked at his nation and the way it was, was and the condition they were in, he knew what God's word said. And as he knew what God's word said, and he thought about what God's word said, and as he looked at his nation and the condition of the people, he was afraid. And I think as disciples of Jesus... That's a good example for us to model two ways. One, as disciples of Jesus, we most definitely should be students of the word. We, like Habakkuk, should know our Bibles. We should know what God has said. If there is a God and if it is the God we worship and if he has spoken and this book is his word, well, how much effort should we put forth in being sure we know What it has said. And if we know what the Bible has said, if we know what God has said, then in some ways, like Habakkuk, as we look at our country and we look at the things going on, we ought to be afraid. Now, that can sound strange. We know what God has said and we are afraid. When we often talk about God's word being something that gives us comfort and strength and encouragement. And to be sure, the Bible speaks Uh, of it giving us strength, it giving us hope, it giving us encouragement. But there should be, 
as Habakkuk, there was a there should be an element of fear, of terror, of awe because of what God has said. And what I want to do is spend some time showing you some things God has said and see how they might apply to our nation and see why we should hear these things and be afraid. First, in Proverbs 29 and 18, it says, Well, there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law happy is he. Now, the vision that the proverb writer is talking about there isn't so much a, a prophetic revelation or the vision like my vision for my life. Instead, it is the, the prophetic revelation from God. He says, where there is no prophetic revelation or where the people reject prophetic revelation, there is a problem. Right now, for us, when we talk about God's prophetic revelation, God's vision, right, we, we don't need a prophet to come and say, thus saith the Lord unto the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. Right, we don't need a prophet to come and say, thus says the Lord for America in our day. We have... God's prophetic revelation for us. We have God's word. And so when we look and see that that, there, that people are not accepting God's word, there is a problem. And the, the, the writer of Proverbs says that the people perish. Now, where the King James says perish, other translations translate that word in different ways. And, and it very literally could mean to cast off restraint or to run wild. And the idea isn't so much that where there is no prophetic revelation, where God's word is not received or it's rejected, that people die. Instead, it's that people cast off restraint. They abandon themselves to their own sinful ways. And what the King James translators did for us was they translated the end result of people casting off God's word and running after their own ways. The end result is they perish. So what we see in this verse is where God's word isn't found or where God's word is rejected. Then people will cast off restraint, any sort of moral restraint. They will run wild and they will live to fulfill the desires of their own sinful nature. Now, think about the idea of casting off restraint and running wild. What would it look like? What would it look like in a country, in a, in a, in a culture where the people had cast off restraint? What would sinful humanity do if there was not God's word to restrain them? Well, as we look at, at history and we look at times where this has happened, we can say there are some things that, were, that will come through. For instance... We can say they would fight violently against all authority. That, that is a, a definite sign of people who have cast off God's word. Right? They, they would violently assault people. That's definitely a sign of people who have cast off God's word, who are running wild. They would, they would steal stuff just because they want it. They would burn stuff. They would break stuff. There would be some sort of like anarchy in the streets. Now, does that sound familiar? It ought to. But let's be real. That's not all people who cast off restraint would do. They would also devalue human life as a whole. They would value certain lives over others. They would be sexually immoral. They would be greedy. They would be selfish. They would have abortions at will. 
They would minimize or eliminate the idea of God's judgment. They would oppress the weak and the powerless. And they would hate people who were ethnically, culturally, or socially different. And that should sound familiar as well. All of these are signs of people who have cast off the restraint of God's word. And the end result of this is they perish. So what happens to a culture that has cast off all restraint? And is running after their own sinful desires. What happens in a country that has cast off all restraint and is living to fulfill their own sinful desires? Such a thought should be frightening. As we look at our country and not again, not just the events of today or the last several months, but over the last decades. We absolutely see a culture that has cast off all restraint, that has rejected God's revelation. And what we're seeing is the fruit of a culture that does this. We should, like Habakkuk, have heard God's word and be afraid. But there's more, right? So... In in Psalm, it says this, but my people would not hearken to my voice and Israel would have none of me. So let me stop there. The psalm pictures God calling to his people. Right. So they are they are in rebellion. So that's the picture people in rebellion against God. And yet God is calling to them. God is speaking to them. God has sent prophets to them. And he is calling on them, do not do this thing I hate, but instead turn back to me. Repent of your sin. Come back. But how do the people respond? And Israel would have none of me. So God calls them, come back to me. Don't do this thing that I hate. And they say no. No, no, we're going to do whatever we want to do. We're going to live however we want to live. We're not going to turn back to you. So after a time of that, what does God do? I gave them up to their own heart's lust. And they walked after their own counsel. In essence, God says to them, oh, you don't want me. Well, have it your own way. I'll not restrain you. I'll not hold you back. You do what your heart desires. And let's see how that works out for you. And so what would it look like if God gave up a people who had heard his voice and ignored it? Now, before we would say that's not America, let's consider how many churches conservative Bible-believing churches are there in America? I mean, how many are there in Guyman? I mean, there's easily a dozen good Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching churches in our community. And, And there are thousands in our community that have never darkened the door of any of those churches. So in Guyman, we could say 
God is calling to them through the church and through the Christians. And through how many of you have invited a lost loved one or a lost friend to church? Have you tried to talk to them and shared the gospel with them? And, and they, they will not hear. Now you take what happens in, in your life and in my life as we've tried this in our church and through our community. And you multiply that by our country. And what you have is there are a rebellious people in America and through his church, God has been calling on them to come back to him. God has been calling on them to to not do those things which he hates, but to come to him. And they would not. So when that happens, God gives them up. So what would it look like? For God to give up a culture, to give them over to their own heart's lust so they would walk after their own counsels and idea. Well, they would fight against all authority. They would violently assault people. They would steal stuff. They would burn stuff. They would devalue human life. They would value certain lives over others. They would be sexually immoral. They would be greedy. They would be selfish. They would have abortions at will. They would minimize or eliminate the idea of God's judgment. They would oppress the weak and the powerless. They would hate people who were ethnically, culturally, or socially different. That is the picture of a culture who has been given over to their own lusts and their own counsels and their own plans. And their own ideas. And it is. It is a form of judgment from God. God restraining his hand from a people. To allow them to do what they want to do. Is a form of it's called temporal judgment. And you say well that's the Old Testament. That's Israel. That's not modern. That's not the New Testament. But I want to show you this. Turn to Romans 1. 8.57 in Pew Bible. Romans 1. Start in verse 18. Romans 1. 18-32. Which we won't look at all of it. Just hit portions of it. It, lay out, it lays out what happens when a culture rejects and replaces God. In their life. We won't have time to look at it in great detail, but you should take some time and study it this week. Romans 1 and 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. So this is a passage talking about God's judgment. Now, you look at the passage and you can see this isn't talking about hell. Right? So this isn't saying God sends people to hell. This is they go to hell. This is judgment here. The wrath of God revealed here. And now it is a form of temporal judgment is what Romans 1 describes. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, why? Why does God's wrath revealed against these people? Why? Is there this wrath that comes on a culture? Because, in verse 19, that which, may, which, that which may be known of God is manifest for them, and God showed it to them. 
For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power of Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginings, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So what happens in a culture that first first happens to cause God's wrath to be revealed against them. The first is they reject God's revelation of himself. Right. So God has revealed himself and God has said, this is what I'm like. I am these things. And because God is real, he cannot be redefined or, or made into something other than what he is. And so he has said, this is who I am. This is what I like. But the culture, the culture that earns God's wrath, that culture rejects God's revelation of himself. They don't like what's been revealed. They don't like what God has said. And so they do something. Verse 23, they change the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of like a corruptible man into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They replace God's revelation of himself with something else. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 23. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. So they, they reject God has said, this is what I'm like, this is who I am. But they say, no, 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 that can't be right. And so they reject that and they replace, here's what I think God is like. Here's what God is like to me. Here's how I imagine God to be. Now, notice one of the reasons they do this, professing themselves to be wise. They're just too smart to believe an old book like the Bible could tell us about a God who nobody has ever seen. There's just, they're too smart. I mean, you look at all of this and all of that, and they're so smart it can't possibly be real. And if there is a God, surely you can't imagine He would care about these sort of things. Surely He would be the way I imagine Him to be and not the way the Bible says He is. And so they reject Him. And they replace it. And they begin to say, well, I don't like the idea of God's wrath. And so God just wants you to be happy. Or I don't like the idea of sexual purity. So love is love. God, love wins. Or I don't like the idea of the uniqueness of Christ. And so all paths lead to God. And they reimagine what God is like. And this goes on for a time, but then there are there is a result of this. What is the result of redefining God, making him in the image of man? Well, look at verse 24. Wherefore, God gave them up to uncleanness through lusts of their own heart. Does this honor their bodies between themselves? Look at verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. Even though women did change the natural use into that which is unnatural. And then in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not 
convenient. And so God gave them up. So just as God gave them up then, God gives up cultures now. Now, through all of this, as the culture is rejecting God's revelation of himself, as the culture is redefining what God is like, God is still calling. He is still sending out His preachers, His prophets, His speakers, His disciples to cry out, to cry out in the wilderness, to say, do not do this thing I hate. And they reject it. It's not like there is just like one day where people think this and the next day the wrath of God comes upon them. No, no, it's not like that. God sends speakers and preachers and prophets and people to witness, to rebuke, to challenge, to exhort, to try to lead people to the truth. But as the people reject God, as they say, I want none of Him, God gives them up. Now, again, we would say, we would be tempted to say, I think, well, that's not America. But is it? Could we say America as a whole, not not pockets here and there, but could we say America as a whole would say, I want none of God? Is that not what we see in the culture on the regular? Is that not what popular TV shows talk about? Is that not what music is about? Is that not what what the social justice warriors are saying to us. Is that not what our culture says all the time? You keep your God in your church, but He does not belong out here. We want nothing to do with Him. And so what would be the ultimate sign? How would we know for sure if God had given a culture over to their lusts? Look at verse 32. Well, I guess look at verse 29. Being filled. So God gives them up in verse 28 to do those things which are not convenient. Here are those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. Full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful. Now, again, this wouldn't be every single person in the culture. This would be a reflection of the culture as a whole. So as we look at these things, do these things reflect our culture? Not every person. Not every place and everywhere, but the culture as a whole. Is our culture filled with all unrighteousness and fornication and covetousness and maliciousness and filled with envy and murder and debate and deceit and malignity and whispers and backbiters and haters of God and despiteful and proud and boasters and inventors of evil things, people disobedient to their parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affliction and unmerciful? Is that our culture as a whole? Well, here's the final way to tell. Verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So the ultimate sign, really, that God has given a culture over 
It is these sorts of sins being the cultural norm, but not only that, those sort of things being the cultural norm, and everybody approves of it. Again, not every single individual. Even in Israel, during their most debased days, there were always a remnant of faithful. But the culture, the majority, approve of it. They understand what the Bible says, maybe, but they don't care. They mock the idea of judgment. They celebrate living your truth and being your real self. They honor it. They glorify it. Could we look at our culture and say, not only are these things common in our culture, but they're approved of in our culture. They're honored. People, who are the who are the honorable men and women of our culture? Are they moral, righteous, and godly? Or are they more like this? And is their immorality, is it a problem or is it just them living their truth? To me, what I see in Romans 1, 18-32, Psalm 81, 11 and 12... Is what I see when I look at our country. Today isn't maybe the breaking point. Today is just a big revelation of this. We have long been in this downward downward spiral of depravity. But we seem to quite possibly have hit a tipping point. And if that's the case, that should be a frightening thought. It should frighten us to look at Romans 1, 18 through 32 and look at our culture and see how many similarities there are. Like Habakkuk, we should hear that and be afraid. But how do we pray? We pray for mercy. In wrath. Remember mercy. This is our posture in prayer as we pray for our country. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And as we look at what we've seen in our country, it would be hard not to say we are reaping what we've sown after years of casting off restraint. After years of hearing God speak and reject it. After years of rejecting God's revelation of himself and redefining God in a way that makes us comfortable. It's hard to look at what happened in 2020 with the riots. What's happening now with the riots that are going on in D.C. And to look at that and not to conclude we are getting what we deserve and we are under the temporal judgment of God. God has allowed us to run wild for years. He has allowed us to fulfill our own lusts and live by our own counsels and our plans and ideas for years. And now God seems to have removed his hand and is allowing us to reap what we've sown. And so we must plead for mercy. 
We cannot go to God pleading for our country saying we don't deserve this. That is arrogant. That is proud. And that is not true. We must go to God and plead for mercy. God, do not give us what we do deserve. In this time of judgment, and that's in the midst of the years, the midst of the years of wrath, make in wrath remember mercy. In wrath, God, in this time of judgment, remember mercy. This is our attitude as we pray for our country. It, it must be. It must be. Even if no one else agrees, let us be a people who understand and recognize our nation's desperate need for mercy. For mercy from God. And let us be a people who plead with God to show mercy to our nation. But let us plead with confidence. For while our nation has sinned, our God is good. Ephesians 2 and 4 tells us He is rich in mercy and great in love. If there is one constant in Scripture, it is not only God's willingness to show mercy, but His desire to show mercy. Let me show, read you something and we'll close. Psalm 81 Let me just read this. This is such a good psalm. And I'll close with this. My people would not hearken unto my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them up to their own hearts and lusts, and they walked after their own counsels. But here's the next verse. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I soon should have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto Him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them with the finest of wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. God is essentially saying, even in the midst of wrath, if you'll cry out, I will show mercy. Let us plead for mercy, knowing our God is abundant in mercy and great in love. So tonight we're going to end with prayer. And if you want to come to the altar to pray, I am. You can pray at the altar or you can pray where you are. And there's not going to be a dismissal when you're through praying. You are dismissed. And let's remember to be praying for our nation.